Please take up your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 1. Um, uh, we will begin today in verse 9, and we will actually see something that becomes a little bit of a pattern throughout the book of Revelation. We'll see it for the first time there. We see it here. We'll see it again in, in chapter 5. We'll see it again in chapter 7, where, where John hears something and he turns to see it more in its fullness. Um, here he's going to hear a voice like a trumpet and he'll turn to see the risen and glorified Christ. In chapter 5, he will hear the description of the Lion of Judah and he will turn to see the Lamb that was slain and yet lives. In Revelation chapter 7, he will hear the people of God numbered and, and turn to see an innumerable multitude made up of every tribe, language, and, and nation in the earth. And, and it reminds us that Oftentimes we will hear things, but we need to go and search the scriptures and and see for ourselves what it is that God has spoken to us. Um, Today we will begin our first full vision of the book of Revelation as we read Revelation chapter one, beginning in verse nine. Hear the word of the Lord. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let us pray. Great God who has chosen us from before the foundation of the world, we come here today because You have chosen for us to hear your word and to grow in our maturity. Send us the spirit today. Send the spirit upon me so that I might speak in a way that honors and glorifies you and send your spirit upon the people that hear today so that that, that we would hear what you have us to hear and grow where you would have us to grow. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So the book of Revelation is structured in such a way that you have an introduction, you have seven visions, 
And then you have a conclusion to the book of Revelation. And today we begin the first vision that John sees within the book of Revelation, uh, a vision that starts here in verse nine and will go through the end of chapter three. And, and as we look at this vision today, it's the opening of the first vision. And, and we are going to see that John sees through imagery that he uses, uh, imagery that he uses to describe the resurrected and glorified and enthroned Jesus. And, and, and these pictures that we will see today will also show up throughout the rest of this vision in the introduction to each of the seven messages to these individual churches. Now, these churches are finally listed for us. We've had them hinted at in the first chapter in our first two sermons, but they are listed for us here. And they are listed in an order that you would that you would visit them if you were traveling from the coast of Asia or modern-day Turkey and visited each of these churches in an oval that would start in the southwest of modern-day Turkey and work their way north and northeast and then back down to the south, making a loop through them. Many scholars see that these would have been the most prominent churches in the first century, and not only would they have received the letters, but they would have been able um, because of their strength, because of their witness, to be able to disseminate this letter to most of the Christian world of the day. But we remember as well that these seven churches also represent the church as a whole, both in the first century and today. The structure, the struggles that they had, the successes that they have, are struggles and successes that the church even today deals with. John goes on to identify himself for the third time as the author of this letter, and we'll talk a little bit about how he describes himself here, but he's writing from the island of Patmos, uh, uh, an island probably about 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey where people of influence uh, within sects and groups that would have uh, been seen by by Rome as antagonistic to the government they would be sent there to remove their influence from the groups that they, that they were leading. John was a leader within the church. He ministered for a time in Ephesus, and as he is an old man, he is sent to the island of Patmos to, to remove his uh, influence. So when does this revelation happen? Well, we've talked about it happens at the end of the first century, but John tells us specifically it happens on the Lord's day. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord or the Lord's day is is the day that God would come to restore and to judge. And and many commentators see uh, John being transported in the spirit to that that last day when Jesus returns. But we know from extra biblical writings, uh, writings that were written that did not make it into the scriptures that that help us see how the church viewed things in the first century. They, they had begun by the end of the first century to call Sunday, the first day of the week when Christians were gathering uh, to be the Lord's day, much as we do now. And here at the beginning of our vision, we see the, the prophetic commissioning that John has. He is, he is in the spirit um, on that Lord's day, very much like Isaiah or Ezekiel First um, Peter chapter one verses ten and following describes the work of the Old Testament prophets as being driven by the Spirit to to prophesy about the the salvation that Jesus would bring, and John uses similar language to say he had been given a commission 
And today we are going to study that commission, which was to write. And what was he to write? He was to write, therefore, what he had seen, what is now happening and what will soon take place. And we will look at his vision in light of those three things, what he has seen, what is now and what will take place later. So first, John is supposed to write what he has seen. And what does it mean that he's supposed to write what he has seen? Well, in a general term, it means that he is to write down the entirety of the book of Revelation. God has given him these visions, these seven visions. He has commanded him to write them down, to distribute them to the church. And while we don't know how long it took for John to receive these visions or to write them down, we do know that he was commissioned to write all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation and, and give it to the church. But, but right here, immediately what he has seen is, is a piece that lays, or another piece of the foundation that we need to know to understand the whole of the book of Revelation. What John has seen is the resurrected and glorified Jesus Sovereign and active within his church. The first thing that he has seen is, is seven lampstands as he turns to see what this voice as he turns to see the voice that has spoken to him. And we know from verse 20, we're letting scripture interpret scripture. We know that these seven golden lampstands that are there is the church, is the seven churches that he has been called to write to, which represents the whole of the church. And then he sees this figure among the lampstands. And, and, and the language there is to give us the idea that he's not just kind of standing there, but he's, he's moving around. He's active among these lampstands, inspecting the lampstands, looking after the lampstands. And there's this figure moving around the lampstands that is described for us in language that is borrowed from Daniel, some of which we read earlier today, some excuse me, some of which comes from Daniel chapter 7. And, and we need to think about the language that John uses here. Notice he frequently uses the words like or as. You know, there was someone like a son of man. There was, there, his head and hair were like wool. They were as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. You know, if you tried to take, if you were an artist and you tried to take these descriptors and you tried to draw this picture, which Albrecht Dürer did uh, close to 500 years ago, you get this really weird picture of a, of a, of a human-like being who has feet that are like fire, who has fire flaming from his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, I can see many of you thinking about it right now. John didn't give us these descriptors so that we could draw a picture of what he said. John gives us these descriptors because these are the best human words he could come up with to describe something that is indescribable. He is confronted with the divine glory of God. And he is tasked with describing something that human eyes cannot comprehend, that, that the human mind cannot wrap itself around. So he uses scriptural language to come as close as he possibly can to describing the indescribable. Why is it indescribable? Well, it's because he's describing the glory of God. 
And brothers, you and I, while we can know true things about God, while we can know God well enough to call him father, to call him Lord and Savior, we cannot fully know or comprehend who and what God is. The best we can do is use stuttering and stammering human language to try to describe the indescribable glory, holiness, majesty of God. And so John does that by using these these word pictures borrowed from the Old Old Testament. He, He talks about the long robe and golden sash that point to Jesus' priestly role on behalf of his people. He talks about hair that talks about hair that is white like wool and, and a face that shines like uh, the stars or like the sun, borrowing from Daniel 7, 9 through 12, linking Jesus with the ancient of days in that prophecy. He has eyes that blaze like fire that that point to Jesus omniscience and and to the glory of his wisdom and his knowledge, the glowing hot bronze of his feet point to his glory and to his purity. His, his voice like rushing waters is borrowed from Ezekiel 43 two, and is a reference to the voice of God that Ezekiel heard. And, and the sharp double-edged sword points us back to that, that iron scepter of Psalm 2 that, that God's king will use to judge the world and the church. We take all of this together and and what John sees is Jesus in all of his magnificence, all of his majesty, all of his glory as he sits enthroned above the heavens, ruling sovereignly over his church and over the world. We see the second person of the Trinity in all of his radiance, all of his power, all of his wisdom, all of his might. And how does John react to this revelation? Of Jesus. He falls down as though dead. This revelation of who Jesus is and the fullness of his glory drives John to his face in worship. He's having a moment like Isaiah had, where Isaiah fell on the ground and says, Woe is me! I deserve to be undone and destroyed because I am a sinner and I serve a sinful people. John is confronted with the holiness, the infinity, the fullness of who Jesus is. And he is driven to worship. This is not the Jesus of the pictures. The pictures where he's, he meekly blonde haired and blue eyed is, 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 is sitting before the door saying, please open the door and let me in. No, this is the God of creation who was active among his church and shows up to John in full power, full glory, full majesty, and John falls on his face to worship. This is the glorious, sovereign, holy, majestic, eternal, and changeable God of the universe. And John falls on his face as though dead. I I find it interesting as I've been studying this, John spent three years with this man. He saw him resurrected. He saw him ascend to heaven. And this is still his reaction to the resurrected and glorified Christ. And Jesus reaches down and says, John puts his hand on him and says, John, don't be afraid. John's comfort in the face of divine glory comes because Jesus, as he says, is the one who died and lives now who died and rose again so that John's sin and sinfulness and all the sins of those who believe in him 
can be forgiven. He rose again from the dead, taking the keys of authority over death, over hell. And he gives comfort to John saying, don't be afraid. You're my child. I am the lamb who was slain. You are safe here in the presence of my glory because you're covered with my righteousness. And John sees this glory in the context of the church. This glorious being is pictured not only walking among the church, being intimately aware of what is going on, examining the church for faithfulness or for unfaithfulness, but he is securely holding the angels of the church in his hand. That's what we're told again in verse 20. Once again, we're letting Scripture interpret Scripture for us here. Now, commentators are are oftentimes split on whether Jesus is talking about a literal guardian angel type being that is over the churches here or whether he is talking about the earthly messengers or ministers of the church. John uses angel throughout the book of Revelation to mean the spiritual being. Other times in the New Testament, the word angel merely means a human messenger. And we could spend hours arguing over the points as to which one would be right. And I lean toward he's talking here as an exception to the rule in the book of Revelation. He is talking here about the earthly ministers of the church. But that's not the point. The point isn't merely to identify the messenger, but to let John and us know that both the church and the people that God sends to the church are held securely in Jesus hand. He knows who is here. He is called who is standing in his pulpit. And as we will look to see in just a moment what is happening now, this this reality that Jesus is active within his church, holding the church and the messengers of the church in his hand. That's what's happening. That's what John sees. And that brings us comfort in light of what is happening now. So John opens our passage today by describing himself and the situation he is in. He describes himself first as a brother to the people. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul and Peter and John oftentimes will not appeal to their authority as apostles, which they often could. Sometimes Paul does. But most of the time they they identify themselves with the people they are writing to. John says, you know, Everybody who believes in Jesus is adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And so we are all family. I'm in this with you. And so he says, I am your brother, John. And then he says, I am a companion to you as well in three things. The first one I want to look at is the one in the middle, which is kingdom. Earlier in chapter one, we were told that the triune God is building up a kingdom of priests to serve and to worship him in a way that brings glory and honor to God. And and John says, I'm a fellow worker. I'm a companion with you in the kingdom of God. But he's also a companion with them in their suffering. John was exiled to Patmos. And while it wasn't necessarily horrible there, it wasn't easy for someone who was likely in his 90s to have to move to this island to live. As we look in chapters 2 and 3, we will see that many of the churches that Jesus has John write to are either in the midst of or getting ready to suffer persecution at the hands of the government around them. John is saying here that I am a companion with you in your suffering. 
That's, that word suffering there is also the word that we see show up later on in the book of Revelation as the word tribulation. It's the same word that shows up in, in chapter 7 where it says after the tribulation, these people will be brought out of their difficulties. We have been so conditioned in our American setting to think of tribulation merely in terms of some future period of horrors and struggle. But the word tribulation merely means to be pressed. To be under pressure. And it describes as it grows in its meaning, it describes a struggle that comes to us from both outside sources and internal sources. Within the New Testament, tribulation is described as imprisonment, as as being made fun of, as poverty, as sickness, as inner distress and sorrow, as anxiety and fear. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says that tribulation comes our way in order to test our faith in God. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and following, we are told that tribulation is the destiny of the Christian. And Luke tells us in Acts 20, 23, that the church is built up through tribulation. The enemy wants you weakened and distracted from the work of being used by God to build his kingdom. He seeks to distract us through the temptation of sin and he seeks to weaken us through suffering and tribulation. Brothers and sisters, what do you struggle with that brings you sorrow, that brings you pain, that brings you fear and difficulty? That is described as tribulation. And and you are not in that tribulation alone. You have your brother John, you have your brothers and sisters sitting in this room that are fellow workers with you in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that tribulation. But you also have the comfort of knowing that the the glorified Savior that John saw holds you just like he does the angels of the churches. He holds you safe and secure in his hand. He is sovereign over the suffering that comes upon his children and upon his church. And that leads us to the third thing that John is a co-laborer with them in, and that is in patient. That is, he is a co-laborer in patient endurance. Jesus' call to the seven churches to overcome in spite of the suffering and temptation that comes their way is a call that is rooted in the fact that Jesus has overcome. He holds in his hand the keys of Hades, the keys of death. He is in authority over both the realm of the dead and the act of dying. Nothing can touch you that Jesus doesn't have authority over, even if it leads to your earthly demise. Take heart, brothers and sisters. The sovereign Savior holds you in His hand. So we've seen what John saw. We see what is happening now. And we see what will soon take place. We'll cover what will soon take place as we move our way through the rest of the book of Revelation. While suffering has always existed in the church, there is a sense in the book of Revelation that it will intensify as history moves on until Jesus comes back triumphant. In the vision of the seals, it talks about one-fourth of humanity and creation being affected. In the, in the vision of the trumpets, which is a re, re, repetition of what happened in the seals, we see a third of humanity and creation affected. And in the vision of the bowls, we see all of humanity 
and creation affected. While the enemy has always been seeking the destruction of the church, persecution and tribulation will intensify as history moves on. While earthly kings have rebelled against the rule and the reign of Jesus, their rebellion will intensify as history moves forward toward Jesus' return. But at the end of history, at the day and the hour that God has appointed, the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in. And the church, especially all the world generally, will see the fullness of the glorious message that Jesus has always been among his church and has always held his church securely in his hand. John is called to write what he has seen and what he has seen is the resurrected and glorified Savior, sovereign and in control over all that happens to his church. He is to write about what now happens. What now happens in this world is that the church suffers tribulation. Some worse than others, but all of God's people suffer tribulation in some way, shape, or form. And what will come to pass is that that tribulation will intensify until Jesus does come back fully victorious in the fullness of his victory. We have John's glorious vision of the glorified Christ holding his church securely so that it will be brought to its ordained and glorious end. That includes each and every one of you who have embraced him as Lord and Savior. He holds you securely and he will see you safely through to your glorious end. Where do you suffer? Where do you struggle? The glorious sovereign Savior who is active among his church will see you through. Let us pray. Our God and Father, I first ask that you would forgive us. When we are confronted with your glory as revealed to us in the scriptures, Sometimes we don't even think, wow. We just turn the page and move on. Help us to feel the fullness and the weight of your glory, the, the resurrected and glorified Savior who is fully God and fully man. And help us fall on our face in worship. But we also ask that as, as each of us struggle under the tribulations that come our way, Remind us that they cannot ultimately harm us and that we are held securely in your hand. That you have the power over everything that happens to us. You have authority over everything that happens to us. And even what seems like an earthly defeat is a sign of your victory, a sign of your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, take this blessing upon you. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of, the, and of Jesus our Lord. Let us lift up our voices to that resurrected and glorified Savior. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.